Section eleven of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gemma Blythe. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book four, containing the time of the year. Chapter one, containing five pages of paper as truth distinguishes our writing from those idle romances which are filled with monsters the productions not of nature but of distempered brains and which have been therefore recommended by an eminent critic to the sole use of the pastry-cook so on the other hand we would avoid any resemblance to that kind of history which a celebrated poet seems to think is no less calculated for the emolument of the brewer as the reading it should be always attended with a tankard of good ale while history with her comrade ale soothes the sad series of her serious tale for as this is the liquor of modern historians nay perhaps their muse if we may believe the opinion of butler who attributes inspiration to ale it ought likewise to be the potation of their readers since every book ought to be read with the same spirit and in the same manner as it is writ thus the famous author of el thrombo told a learned bishop that the reason his lordship could not taste the excellence of his piece was that he did not read it with a fiddle in his hand which instrument he himself had always had in his own when he composed it that our work therefore might be in no danger of being likened to the labours of these historians we have taken every occasion of interspersing through the whole sundry similes descriptions and other kinds of poetical embellishments these are indeed designed to supply the place of the said ale and to refresh the mind whenever those slumbers which in a long work are apt to invade the reader as well as the writer shall begin to creep upon him without interruptions of this kind the best narrative of plain matter of fact must overpower every reader for nothing but the everlasting watchfulness which homer has ascribed only to jove himself can be proof against a newspaper of many volumes we shall leave to the reader to determine with what judgment we have chosen the several occasions for inserting those ornamental parts of our work surely it will be allowed that none could be more proper than the present where we are about to introduce a considerable character on the scene no less indeed than the heroine of this heroic historical prosaic poem here therefore we have thought proper to prepare the mind of the reader for her reception by filling it with every pleasing image which we can draw from the face of nature and for this method we plead many precedents first this is an art well known to and much practised by our tragic poets who seldom fail to prepare their audience for the reception of their principal characters thus the hero is always introduced with a flourish of drums and trumpets in order to rouse a martial spirit in the audience and to accommodate their ears to bombast and fustian which mr locke's blind man would not have grossly erred in likening to the sound of a trumpet again when lovers are coming forth soft music often conducts them on the stage either to soothe the audience with the softness of the tender passion or to lull and prepare them for that gentle slumber in which they will most probably be composed by the ensuing scene and not only the poets but the masters of these poets the managers of playhouses seem to be in this secret 
for besides the aforesaid kettle-drums, etc., which denote the hero's approach, he is generally ushered on the stage by a large troop of half a dozen scene-shifters, and how necessary these are imagined to his appearance may be concluded from the following theatrical story. King Beerus was at dinner at an alehouse bordering on the theatre, when he was summoned to go on the stage, the hero, being unwilling to quit his shoulder of mutton, and as unwilling to draw upon himself the indignation of Mr. Wilkes, his brother-manager, for making the audience wait, had bribed these, his harbingers, to be out of the way, while Mr. Wilkes, therefore, was thundering out, Where are the carpenters to walk on before King Pyrrhus? That monarch very quietly ate his mutton, and the audience, however impatient, were obliged to entertain themselves with music in his absence. To be plain, I much question whether the politician, who hath generally a good nose, hath not scented out somewhat of the utility of this practice. I am convinced that awful magistrate, my lord mayor, contracts a good deal of that reverence which attends him through the year by the several pageants which precede his pomp. Nay, I must confess that even I myself, who am not remarkably liable to be captivated with show, have yielded not a little to the impressions of much preceding state. When I have seen a man strutting in a procession after others whose business was only to walk before him, I have conceived a higher notion of his dignity than I have felt on seeing him in a common situation. But there is one instance which comes exactly up to my purpose. This is the custom of sending out a basket-woman, who is to precede the pomp at a coronation, and to strew the stage with flowers before the great personages begin their procession. The Antians would certainly have invoked the goddess Flora for this purpose, and it would have been no difficulty for their priests or politicians to have persuaded the people of the real presence of the deity, though a plain mortal had personated her and performed her office. But we have no such design of imposing on our reader, and therefore those who object to the heathen theology may, if they please, change our goddess into the above-mentioned basket-woman. Our intention, in short, is to introduce our heroine with the utmost solemnity in our power, with an elevation of style and all other circumstances proper to raise the veneration of our reader. Indeed we would, for certain causes, advise those of our male readers who have any hearts to read no further, were we not well assured that how amiable soever the picture of our heroine will appear, as it is really a copy from nature. Many of our fair country women will be found worthy to satisfy any passion and to answer any idea of female perfection which our pencil will be able to raise. And now, without any further preface, we proceed to our next chapter. Chapter 2. A short hint of what we can do in the sublime and a description of Miss Sophia Western. Hushed be every ruder breath. May the heathen ruler of the winds continue in iron chains the boisterous limbs of noisy Boreas, and the sharp-pointed nose of bitter-biting Eurus. Do thou, sweet Zephyrus, rising from thy fragrant bed, mount the western sky, and lead on those delicious gales, the charms of which call forth the lovely flora from her chamber, perfumed with pearly dews, when on the first of June, her birthday, the blooming maid in loose attire, gently trips it over the verdant mead 
where every flower rises to do her homage, till the whole field becomes enameled, and colours contend with sweets which shall ravish her most. So charming may she now appear, and you the feathered choristers of nature, whose sweetest notes not even Handel can excel, tune your melodious throats to celebrate her appearance. From love proceeds your music, and to love it returns. Awaken, therefore, that gentle passion in every swain, for, lo, adorned with all the charms in which nature can array her, bedecked with beauty, youth, sprightliness, innocence, modesty, and tenderness, breathing sweetness from her rosy lips, and darting brightness from her sparkling eyes, the lovely Sophia comes. Reader, perhaps thou hast seen the statue of the Venus de Medicis, perhaps, too, Thou hast seen the gallery of beauties at Hampton Court. Thou mayst remember each bright Churchill on the galaxy, and all the toasts of the Kit-Kat, or if their reign was before thy times. At least thou hast seen their daughters, the no less dazzling beauties of the present age, whose names shall we here insert. We apprehend they would fill the whole volume. Now if thou hast seen all these, be not afraid of the rude answer which Lord Rochester once gave to a man who had seen many things. No, if thou hast seen all these, without knowing what beauty is, thou hast no eyes, if without feeling its power thou hast no heart. Yet it is possible, my friend, that thou mayest have seen all these without being able to form an exact idea of Sophia, for she did not exactly resemble any of these. She was most like the picture of Lady Ranelagh, and I have heard more still to the famous Duchess of Mazarin, but most of all she resembled one whose image never can depart from my breast, and whom, if thou dost remember, thou hast then, my friend, an adequate idea of Sophia. But lest this should not have been thy fortune, we will endeavour with our utmost skill to describe this paragon, though we are sensible that our highest abilities are very inadequate to the task. Sophia, then, the only daughter of Mr. Weston, was a middle-sized woman, but rather inclining to tall. Her shape was not only exact, but extremely delicate, and the nice proportion of her arms promised the truest symmetry in her limbs. Her hair, which was black, was so luxuriant that it reached her middle before she cut it to comply with the modern fashion, and it was now curled so gracefully in her neck that few could believe it to be her own, if envy could find any part of the face which demanded less commendation than the rest, it might possibly think her forehead might have been higher without prejudice to her. Her eyebrows were full, even, and arched, beyond the power of art to imitate. Her black eyes had a luster in them which all her softness could not extinguish. Her nose was exactly regular, and her mouth, in which were two rows of ivory, exactly answered Sir John Suckling's description in those lines. Her lips were red, and one was thin, compared to that was next her chin. Some bee had stung it newly. Her cheeks were of the oval kind, and in her right she had a dimple, which the least smile discovered. Her chin had certainly its share of forming the beauty of her face, but it was difficult to say it was either large or small, that perhaps it was rather of the former kind. Her complexion had rather more of the lily than the rose, but when exercise or modesty increased her natural color, no vermilion could equal it. 
than one might indeed cry out with the celebrated Dr. Dunn. Her pure and eloquent blood spoke in her cheeks, and so distinctly wrought that one might almost say her body thought. Her neck was long and finely turned, and here, if I was not afraid of offending her delicacy, I might justly say the highest beauties of the famous Venus de Medicis were outdone. Here was whiteness which no lilies, ivory, nor alabaster could match. The finest cambric might indeed be supposed from envy to cover that bosom, which was much whiter than itself. It was indeed splendens, parium amore porius, a gloss shining beyond the purest brightness of Parian marble. Such was the outside of Sophia, nor was this beautiful frame disgraced by its inhabitants unworthy of it. Her mind was every way equal to her person, nay, the latter borrowed some charms from the former, for when she smiled, the sweetness of her temper diffused that glory over her countenance which no regularity of features can give. But as there are no perfections of the mind which do not discover themselves in that perfect intimacy to which we intend to introduce our reader with this charming young creature, so it is needless to mention them here. Nay, it is a kind of tacit affront to our reader's understanding, and may also rob him of that pleasure which he will receive in forming his own judgment of her character. It may, however, be proper to say that whatever mental accomplishments she had derived from nature, they were somewhat improved and cultivated by art, for she had been educated under the care of an aunt, who was a lady of great discretion, and was thoroughly acquainted with the world, having lived in her youth about the court, when she had retired some years since into the country, by her conversation and instructions. Sophia was perfectly well-bred, though perhaps she wanted a little of that ease in her behaviour, which is to be acquired only by habit, and living within what is called the polite circle. But this, to say the truth, is often too dearly purchased, and though it hath charm so inexpressible, that the French, perhaps, among other qualities, mean to express this, when they declare they know not what it is, yet its absence is well compensated by innocence, nor can good sense and a natural gentility ever stand in need of it. Chapter 3 Wherein the history goes back to commemorate a trifling incident that happened some years since, but which, trifling as it was, had some future consequences. The amiable Sophia was now in her eighteenth year, when she is introduced into this history. Her father, as hath been said, was fonder of her than of any other human creature. To her, therefore, Tom Jones applied in order to engage her interest on the behalf of his friend the gamekeeper. But before we proceed to this business, a short recapitulation of some previous matters may be necessary. Though the different tempers of Mr. Allworthy and of Mr. Weston did not admit of a very intimate correspondence, yet they lived upon what is called a decent footing together, by which means the young people of both families had been acquainted from their infancy, and as they were all near the same age, had been frequent playmates together. The gaiety of Tom's temper suited better with Sophia, than the grave and sober disposition of Master Blifil, and the preference which he gave the former of these, which often appears so plainly, that a lad of a more passionate turn than Master Blifil was, might have shown some displeasure at it, as he did not, however, 
outwardly express any such disgust it would be an ill office in us to pay a visit in the inmost recesses of his mind as some scandalous people search into the most secret affairs of their friends and often pry into their closets and cupboards only to discover their poverty and meanness to the world however as persons who suspect they have given others cause of offence are apt to conclude they are offended so sophia imputed an action of master blifil to his anger which the superior sagacity of blackham and square discerned to have arisen from a much better principle tom jones when very young had presented sophia with a little bird which he had taken from the nest had nursed up and taught to sing of this bird sophia then about thirteen years old was so extremely fond that her chief business was to feed and tend it and her chief pleasure to play with it by these means little tommy for so the bird was called was become so tame that it would feed out of the hand of its mistress would perch upon the finger and lie contented in her bosom where it seemed almost sensible of its own happiness though she always kept a small string about its leg nor would ever trust it with the liberty of flying away one day when mr allworthy and his whole family dined at mr weston's master blifil being in the garden with little sophia and observing the extreme fondness that she showed for her little bird desired her to trust it for a moment in his hands sophia presently complied with the young gentleman's request and after some previous caution delivered him her bird of which he was no sooner in possession than he slipped the string from its leg and tossed it into the air the foolish animal no sooner perceived itself at liberty than forgetting all the favours it had received from sophia it flew directly from her and perched on a bough at some distance sophia seeing her bird gone screamed out so loud that tom jones who was at a little distance immediately ran to her assistance he was no sooner informed of what had happened than he cursed blifil for a pitiful malicious rascal and then immediately stripping off his coat he applied himself to climbing the tree to which the bird escaped tom had almost recovered his little namesake when the branch on which it was perched and that hung over a canal broke and the poor lad plumped over head and ears into the water sophia's concern now changed its object and as she apprehended the boy's life was in danger she screamed ten times louder than before and indeed master blifil himself now seconded her with all the vociferation in his power the company who was sitting in a room next to the garden were instantly alarmed and came all forth but just as they reached the canal tom for the water was luckily pretty shallow in that part arrived safely on shore thwackham fell violently on poor tom who stood dropping and shivering before him when mr allworthy desired him to have patience and turning to master blifil said pray child what is the reason of all this disturbance master blifil answered indeed uncle i am very sorry for what i have done i have been unhappily the occasion of it all i had miss sophia's bird in my hand and thinking the poor creature languished for liberty i own i could not forbear giving it what it desired for i always thought there was something very cruel in confining anything it seemed to be against the law of nature by which everything hath a right to liberty nay it is even unchristian for it is not doing what we would be done by 
but if I had imagined Miss Sophia would have been so much concerned at it, I am sure I never would have done it, nay, if I had known what would have happened to the bird itself, for when Master Jones, who climbed up that tree after it, fell into the water, the bird took a second flight, and presently a nasty hawk carried it away. Poor Sophia, who now first heard of her little Tommy's fate, for her concern for Jones had prevented her perceiving it when it happened, shed a shower of tears. These Mr. Allworthy endeavoured to assuage, promising her a much finer bird, but she declared she would never have another. Her father chid her for crying so for a foolish bird, but could not help telling young Blifil if he was a son of his, his backside would be well fleed. Sophia now returned to her chamber, the two young gentlemen were sent home, and the rest of the company returned to their bottle, where a conversation ensued on the subject of the bird, so curious that we think it deserves a chapter by itself. End of section 11